Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. SCP-5999. This is where I died. The SCP Foundation has a lot of containment procedures. Many of these are pretty simple. Throw the weird thing in a box and move on while others are bewilderingly complex, involving rituals layered on rituals. It's the latter type we'll be looking at today, an SCP article that, on the surface, makes very little sense, but assuredly contains something nonetheless. We'll be going through seven different sections, each seemingly unrelated, and each counting down until a grand explanation is called for. We start with an image of seven candles, all lit, and we're told the image is instrumental to proper containment. The Department of Analytics is tasked every year with gathering seven civilians to witness a procedure called Procedure Sevenfold. These seven civilians are brought to the Albright Manor on October 30th under heavy sedation, so that they awaken around midnight on October 31st. All entrances to Albright Manor have been sealed, barred, and boarded up, except for an underground shaft concealed in the cellar, where each witness is deposited. We're also informed, for some reason, that the chains remain taut. Albright Manor itself is fitted with surveillance devices, so that personnel in a nearby outpost can also witness Procedure Sevenfold. These personnel are a containment specialist and two D-class, who are given false containment procedures. Any personnel who survive the night are to be killed with sarin gas inside of the outpost. On November 1st, a day later, a cleanup crew gets sent in to remove the remains of every witness, if possible. It seems that sometimes it's incredibly difficult to retrieve the bodies, and so the Foundation then considers the remains to be the possession of the Albright Manor, to be integrated into future events. Corpses that are retrieved are incinerated in a crematorium by personnel wearing noise-canceling headphones. For the remainder of the year, personnel involved in cleanup are to be wary of any surface which contains the phrase, This is where I died. So far, all we have are the containment procedures, no description of what Albright Manor is or what Procedure Sevenfold is. Obviously, there are some overt references here with the number 7 and the mentions of chains. SCP-2317 is a great and terrible entity that was originally contained through seven chains, some believing it to be the Scarlet King. As for whether or not this has anything to do with the Scarlet King, we'll just have to keep reading. The next page has six lit candles out of seven, and instead of containment procedures, we get a description although, like I said, seemingly unrelated to the first part. The description details the anomalous scattered remains of a Miss Jacqueline Holcroft, who was assaulted and killed by six unknown assailants on June 6, 2006. The anomalous effects began sometime after her death, 
but it's believed that if all of her remains are gathered together and laid to rest, the effects will cease. Anyone in the vicinity of a part of Holcroft's remains, or anyone who is aware of the nature of the crime leading to her death, may be affected. These effects include various hallucinations, such as seeing a nude, disheveled woman with deep lacerations along her extremities, consistent with the wounds Holcroft suffered. The figure typically appears in an affected person's peripheral vision, clutching its midsection, and disappears when looked at directly. Subjects will also hear unintelligible whispers and moans, and on rare occasions, pleading and begging, with their own name being called. Six subjects have reported hearing an unfamiliar song with the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Subjects will also hallucinate the smell of amniotic fluid. Subjects will continue to experience these effects until they die, which is hastened along by another set of effects that begins six months after the onset. Subjects will begin to find various body parts and organs randomly, such as when opening a drawer, lifting a toilet seat, or in their meals. These objects disappear when unobserved. Additionally, any images or videos featuring the subject will also show a filthy nude woman, either obscured somewhat or in the background. The woman seems to be Holcroft, with a large vertical gash running down her torso. Subjects will also experience sleep paralysis, during which they report the presence of multiple shadowy figures who hold down and mutilate them. Before the paralysis ends, subjects feel a searing pain in their gut and claim that a vital component of their being was removed. The final secondary effect is an irrational fear that the chains are weakening. Hmm. After some time, the Foundation managed to track down all 206 of Holcroft's bones and interred them in the Holcroft family plot. Upon conclusion of the funeral, everyone that attended the service suffered spontaneous disembowelment. On the bright side, everyone that had been affected by the anomalies reported that the effects had stopped, but they were all now sterile. Additionally, one in six subjects with living children reported the disappearance of one of their children, none of which have been recovered. I guess that's not much of a bright side. The description ends by noting that this has had no effect on Miss Holcroft's presence within the Albright Manor. So, overall an SCP description that isn't especially remarkable on its own, but it does share a couple connections with the first part. Affected subjects possess an irrational fear that the chains are weakening, with no additional info about what the chains are holding. It would also seem that Miss Holcroft had been in Albright Manor, although that doesn't sound like where she died. We'll just have to keep reading. Five candles now, and it's an exploration log, coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, in the same town where the Holcroft family plot is located. The population of the town is listed as 3125, which happens to be 5 to the 5th power, and five members of MTF Epsilon 5, Pentacle, are sent in to investigate a sudden thick fog and the apparent disappearance of all town residents. The video log is recorded by a body camera carried by MTF agent Joy Bates, call sign Echo, which happens to be the fifth letter in the NATO phonetic alphabet. Anyways, the team heads toward the town in a Foundation Humvee, and it's noted that the chains in the road break easily beneath the Humvee's wheels. 
Echo watches as the forest surrounding the town gives way to a thick fog, drastically reducing visibility. The team decides to head on foot from here on out. They soon find a black sedan lying on its side, with the roof torn off. Near it is an ivy-coated brick building behind a rusted chain-link fence. Since the team can't even see beyond the width of the street, they set up a defensive position while imaging hardware is set up. It's revealed that two of the team members are siblings, and both were born here. The thermal imaging equipment turns out to be useless, so they continue on. Echo gets tasked with investigating the black sedan, discovering that the vehicle is still running, and a country song is playing on the radio. There's been extensive damage to the vehicle, and the dashboard is sporting a copious amount of blood. Most of the seatbelts are still buckled in, except for the front passenger seat, presumably which is where the blood came from. When Echo turns back to the team, she notices that one of them is missing, which comes as a surprise to the others. It's not noted by Echo, but beneath the Humvee in the video footage is a figure that skitters out of sight, walking on five forelimbs. The team rallies together and continues into the town as they hear a low, bellowing sound, comparable to trumpets. They come across a barbershop with a shattered window, and a building that was recently destroyed by a raging fire. The two siblings remark that this used to be their favorite pizzeria. The team leader hears a quiet, bleeding sound somewhere in the distance, and as they move towards it, they spot a figure enshrouded in the mist across the street. The team leader approaches with his weapon ready, finding it to be a lamb laying in the grass in front of a home, the number 5 painted on its side with blue paint. The lamb continues to bleat and cry, distressed by the MTF, but when it stands to run away, it quickly collapses again. Dried blood is seen on the ground underneath it, and one of the team approaches the animal and finds something small and metallic lodged into each of its hind hooves. Delta bends down to pet the lamb, and turns to Alpha to ask if they should euthanize it. Delta doesn't notice as the lamb begins to violently convulse from the neck up, until her brother shouts at her. Delta falls and quickly backs away from the animal, as Alpha fires his weapon at it. The lamb's midsection gets blown away, but it climbs to its feet as its guts spill out, still convulsing and bleeding. Its vocalizations take on a human sound, devolving into the screams made by the bodies in the crematorium of the Albright Manor, the ones that personnel wear noise-canceling headphones to block out. Delta gets picked up by her brother, but her feet seem to be locked into position, as thick pieces of metal have come out of the soil and pierced both of her feet. The metal objects are constructed to make it impossible to pull her off of them, and Alpha continues to fire upon the demon lamb. Its screams have grown louder, and similar sounds can be heard in the distance from multiple sources. Echo is trying to remove the metal pieces somehow from Delta, but looks up at the lamb, which is now an unrecognizable bloodied husk. It rears up, causing leathery wings to unfurl from its back, and it begins to flap them as it rises into the air, although its hind legs are dug into the earth. As Echo continues to help Delta, the metal pieces pull downward into the ground, severing one of Echo's fingers. Delta gets pulled ankle-deep into the earth, and two of them attempt to pull her free. 
The lamb creature continues to rise above the ground, its hind legs grossly extended now. Delta is waist-deep in the ground as bleeding sounds can be heard all around them. Alpha requests covering fire and orders them to abandon Delta as she gets buried up to her chest. Her brother is still pulling with all his might as Echo takes out her sidearm and offers to spare Delta her fate. He threatens Echo's life if she pulls that trigger. Several lambs emerge from the fog around the group, slowly limping towards them. Alpha again orders them to retreat, and Echo asks Alpha directly for permission to shoot Delta, as she now only has her head and her arms free. Before she gets a response, Delta gets pulled completely under. Echo watches the demon lamb as it floats higher, now pulling its elongated legs out of the ground, revealing elongated hooves glistening with a metallic sheen. Speared to the bottom of the hooves are human feet, and as it rises, it pulls out the naked form of Delta, her body limp. Her brother opens fire on the creature, but it flies over the team, carrying Delta with it. It floats over to a telephone pole, where it slams Delta's body into it. Delta is now attached to the telephone pole by her feet, and the creature flies off as the trumpet sound is heard again. Alpha radios command, who just tell him to continue searching the town. Echo bandages her missing finger, and Delta's brother makes several attempts to climb the telephone pole and retrieve his sister's body before the three of them move on. They continue their trek through the town for 20 minutes, noting the chaos that occurred here before everyone disappeared. A number of vehicular accidents and fires and various alarms continue to ring out, alongside a weeping sound. As they pass through a wrought iron fence, Alpha notes the stench of decay, and Bravo informs them that they are passing by the elementary school. They see several unidentified human figures against a fence beneath a weeping willow tree, each of them naked and unmoving. They decide to keep their distance, moving around the figures to the other side of the fence, Here they can identify five figures total, tied by their wrists to the fence and held upright, each in various states of decay. Their backsides are torn and bloodied with large gashes, likely from flagellation by a whip-like tool. The corpse in the center is slightly different though, fresher than the others, and its wounds look different. Bravo approaches and pours water from his canteen on the figure's back, washing away blood to reveal a tattoo, the insignia of MTF Epsilon 5. They realize that this is the missing member of their team, Charlie, and the lacerations on his back spell out a phrase, This is where I died. As Bravo turns back to rejoin the other two, a thick thorned vine emerges from the weeping willow and wraps around Bravo's head, immediately drawing blood. He is quickly pulled upwards and out of sight as the sound of splintering bones can be heard over his screams. The sounds stop as the low trumpet sound is heard again, and blood and viscera spill out of the tree. Alpha and Echo begin running back to their Humvee as bleeding and screaming can be heard. The two quickly get lost though, inadvertently making their way to the town's center. In their peripheral vision, faces can be seen in the fog, and distant weeping can be heard turning into sobbing 
and eventually, laughter. The laughter grows in intensity as the two continue, and the text notes that something large stirs underneath, beginning to be free from its shackles. Alpha fires his sidearm at nothing, and Echo threatens to leave him behind as he's behaving erratically, but he doesn't comply, so she continues alone. Gunshots and Alpha's shouts continue to be heard for a few minutes before the trumpet sound is heard again, and all goes silent. Echo cuts through a cul-de-sac and several properties before tripping over something in the ground, cutting her leg. She looks around and realizes that she's in a cemetery, so she curses three times, immediately apologizes, and says a quick prayer. She hobbles through the cemetery, coming to a church, and she shakily makes her way through the front door. Surprisingly, there is no fog inside of the church, and everything is in perfect order, aside from one thing. Attached to the large cross behind the pulpit is the nailed body of Alpha, wrapped in a tunic. He is still alive, but when Echo comes closer, he coughs, expelling blood and nails from his mouth. As Echo reaches towards him, his eyes open, revealing blinding lights. The sound of thunder is heard, the building's foundation shakes, and Echo runs for the door as Alpha bleats behind her. Echo looks around to try and rush out of the cemetery, seeing that the nearest graves to her have collapsed, and hands and fingers are gripping the edges of the one closest to her. As Echo runs toward the street, she falls to her knees and finds herself unable to stand. Heavy footsteps can be heard, the ground shaking with each step, and Echo cries and begs forgiveness as she begins to pray. Her prayers are interrupted as a long blade becomes embedded in her side, and she begins to raise up into the sky, the camera footage becoming lost in the fog. Echo is turned in the air to face a massive human figure, its eyes enshrouded in shadow, with a gaunt face covered in a beard. Echo struggles as she is brought closer to the entity's face, eventually noticing that the face is comprised of countless human bodies squirming against one another. The text refers to it as the false beast, and it opens its maw as a roiling thunder can be heard from the depths of its being. The trumpets bellow once again as the log ends, making it, surprise, the fifth time that the trumpets were sounded. Whew, that was certainly eventful. Obviously, there's plenty of religious connotations here, and while an article embedded with the number five might have something to do with fifthism, The religion concerned here seems to be much more traditional. We did get another reference to the chains, and the mention of a false beast could be interesting. As much as we could sit here and try and decipher what everything means here, though, it's actually best if we continue on. Four candles now, with an interview log from 2004 between Dr. McNeil of the Department of Demonology and Agent Grace, a purification specialist with MTF Mu-13, Ghostbusters. During a recent operation, codenamed Four Monarchs, and classified as Level 4, Agent Grace was possessed by a demonic entity. The text tells us that this was due to a failure of the chains in holding what lies beneath. 
Grace was taken to the Department of Demonology for an exorcism, but initial attempts have failed, so Dr. McNeil was brought in to interview Grace. McNeil is a specialist in demonic psychology, so it's believed he has a chance of removing the demon via coercion or intimidation. He starts with the basic command of telling the demon to leave, but the demon only repeats a series of four names, who McNeil says died because of the demon's actions. He grows more commanding, telling the demon that it will rot deep in this facility if it doesn't let go, and that it is at his mercy now. It will be punished for resisting, and it should take the escape that he is offering. The demon begins reciting the Lord's Prayer backwards, a fairly old trope, which McNeil says is a useless and pathetic trick. He instead begins quoting Deuteronomy 4 verse 4, but all of you who held fast to the... and asks the demon to finish it. The demon continues reciting the backwards Lord's Prayer, but McNeil is insistent until the demon eventually acquiesces, and together they speak the full verse, along with the next one. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. The log ends here, but McNeil definitely succeeded in breaking down the demon's will. Again, it doesn't really seem connected to anything, other than hearing that this demonic possession was apparently due to the chains failing in holding something beneath us. It would therefore seem to suggest that the chains are meant to hold back something demonic, rather than, say, the Scarlet King, as the Christian themes seem to continue. Once again, though, we must continue on. Three Candles, with the timeline of an incident, The incident in question is in relation to a video game titled Prodigy, Priest, King, released in 1988. The timeline extends prior to the Foundation's involvement, as conversations were logged on Usenet, and the Foundation later did their own control testing. Subjects affected by this anomaly are color-coded in the document based on their empathic role determined by the game, either Alpha, Theta, or Omega. Beginning on November 29th, a nine-year-old boy in California experiences numbness in his hands throughout the school day, and by noon has lost all sensation below his wrists. The boy is taken to the hospital by his mother, but on the way he regains feeling. The mother attributes the cause to an extended play session of the game the previous night. The same day, a 27-year-old man in Texas returns his copy of the game to the store, claiming that once entering the main location, Labyrinth, all audio cuts out, replaced only with an occasional prolonged rumble. He's given a replacement copy. A 12-year-old girl in New Hampshire is seen outside of her house in the pouring rain, staring at the full moon. Her neighbors usher her back into her house and alert her parents. The next day, an 18-year-old in Colorado experiences an uncharacteristic, severe, depressive episode, which is relieved by the embrace of his father. Also, 15-year-old triplets are reported absent from school the same day, found locked in their bedroom, where they have drawn a top-down representation of the map to the in-game labyrinth on their walls. The phrase, This is where I died, 
is carved in the corner of the room. On December 1st, a 33-year-old woman in Pennsylvania destroys her son's copy of the game because of his obsession, to the point of soiling himself while playing. Later that day, she falls down her basement stairs, fatally breaking her neck. The same boy that lost feelings in his hands is now unable to get out of bed due to losing feeling in his entire body, so he is rushed to the emergency room. A three-year-old boy in Oklahoma seizes and slips into a coma while watching his older sibling play the game. A news group is established on Usenet, Alt Binaries PPK, to discuss the game, with several users expressing frustration about finding the mirror, the jewel, or the sword. A user going by the name of Trey uploads several photographs of their computer screen, showing off a glitch in the game. The enemy sprite for the ghoul listed as Entity A by the Foundation, is glitched to appear much shorter than normal, with blackened skin with flecks of red. Trey claims that it can neither be killed nor interacted with, and may end up blocking access to crucial areas of the game, forcing a reset. Six other users claim to have experienced this same glitch. On December 2nd, The mother of the man in Texas who returned his copy of the game visits her son's home after he missed two days of work at the family store. His bedroom door won't open, and she hears a low, blaring, monotone chip tune coming from inside. She calls the police, who break through the barricaded door, finding the man's mattress propped up against the windows and all of the lights shattered. The only source of light in the bedroom is coming from the monitor, displaying a game-over screen which doesn't seem to turn off until the monitor is unplugged. The man is nowhere to be found. Another user on the news group, going by Jean-Luc Picard, with a 3 instead of an E, of course, uploads four image files showing a hidden tunnel in a corner of the labyrinth. The tunnel leads to a small, colorful room resembling a child's bedroom, unlike anything else in the game and in one image, the glitched ghoul sprite is standing in a corner, facing a wall. The jewel item, apparently representing the prodigy from the title, can be found on the nightstand in the room. December 3rd. Several users in the news group that have now recovered the jewel item are now reporting the presence of a new enemy, listed as Entity B, in the crypt. It appears as a dark-robed humanoid which flees from the player, but if cornered, can be easily killed. It regenerates after three seconds, leading players to repeatedly kill it for easy experience points, naturally. The young girl that was staring at the moon is found in the fetal position in the corner of her room, crying and shaking. A pair of twins are found in their parents' basement, reciting the song Twinkle Twinkle Little Star incessantly, but with incorrect lyrics. A 24-year-old man in New Jersey is found by the police in his home, bludgeoned to death. His eyes, hands, and genitals were violently removed before death, and a rod was inserted in his anal cavity. A six-year-old child is recovered from his basement. December 4th, another user on the news group begins a sub-thread about her experiences with the game, claiming that the ghost enemies are vocalizing her name instead of the normal sounds. Most other users are skeptical, but one other claims to experience the same issue. 
The parents of the triplets that lock themselves in their room invite a priest into their home for counsel. When the priest enters the bedroom, the boy's father does something to the priest, expunged from the record, but noted as fulfilling profiles Alpha, Theta, and Omega. The mother calls the police, but the call is intercepted by the Foundation, who are now involved, sending in an MTF instead. The MTF apparently finds a mass inside of the home, which they move into a mobile containment vehicle. The mass spontaneously combusts once placed on the examination table, revealing the father, the priest, and the three boys. The father and the priest live for several minutes, but the priest dies of cranial trauma, and the father causes the mass to fall off of the table, severing his cervical vertebrae in the process. A copy of the game is extracted from the abdomen of one of the three boys. The man that experienced a severe depressive episode is now suffering from near incomprehensible speech outside of simple phrases, along with impaired motor functions. A large tumor is discovered growing in his brain. December 5th. A 15-year-old in New York tells his psychiatrist about a recurring nightmare and sleep paralysis he's been experiencing the past few nights, during which he dies in a house fire. A user going by the name Thrice Denied reports a glitch in which all text in their game has been replaced with the text, This is where I died. The user Trey is apparently the first player to have reached the hedge maze area, and they claim that the music on this stage is bugged periodically being interrupted by a loud snapping noise. A D-class in controlled foundation testing plays the game and retrieves the jewel item, causing the screen to go black. The D-class convulses and dies, and during dissection, it's found that the body contains a malformed heart, left kidney, and right lung, which are not genetic matches to the subject. December 6th. A recall of the game causes posts in the newsgroup to drop off considerably, but a few users hold on to their copies. Another user reaches the hedge maze and uploads several images of an object in the night sky, designated as Entity C. Trey obtains the sword, representing the king, and progresses to the final area of the game, although they don't say what that area is. The girl that stared at the moon is found dead, her body somehow preserved under a layer of hot ash. Sierpinski's triangle, a fractal, is charred into the linoleum nearby. At a foundation site, cries for help are heard coming from a test chamber where a doll is found. The doll is disposed of, and the cries cease. An audible snap is heard throughout Site 33, and the researcher who had overseen the previous night's testing of the game is found to have hanged herself. December 7th. Foundation operatives arrive at the home of a newsgroup member who held the second-to-last copy of the game. An agent suffers third-degree burns on his hands from trying to separate the girl from her monitor. The girl is terminated by the team leader. Another D-class reaches the hedge maze using information taken from the newsgroup and the Foundation corroborates the claims of glitched music and the Entity in the Sky. The Entity is a humanoid sprite, hanged by the neck by a rope that extends beyond where the player can see. The D-Class refuses to play any further, instead only weeping and begging for forgiveness. 
Another D-Class manages to recover the mirror in their playthrough, presumably representing the priest, but some data is expunged about the aftermath. An MTF arrives 30 minutes later to isolate the creature, after which the sector of the facility is evacuated and destroyed. No disciplinary action is taken against the researchers and guards because they apparently weren't in control of their actions, and several are treated for fractures in their hands. Samples of the creature's seminal fluid are sent to another site for study, and the Ethics Committee issues a mandate prohibiting the use of D-Class with a history of sexual offense. At this point, the Foundation creates the Alpha, Theta, and Omega profiles for those affected, based on the anomalous effects. The twins that were incorrectly singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star are now found dead. Broken chain links are scattered about the vicinity of the bodies. Another D-Class finds the sword while playing, progressing to the final level of the game, an area titled with a nonsensical assortment of letters and symbols. Research staff are forced to wear sound-canceling headgear while observing. December 8th, three D-Class that had been involved in the game testing are found absent from their cells. Trails of blood and viscera are found in the cells leading in the direction of the testing chambers, ending at the walls. Shattered glass, a class ring, and a shiv are found in the remains. The boy that went numb is pronounced dead by Foundation doctors following a seizure. His body continues to twitch over the next half hour before standing, approaching the attendant doctor, and embracing him. User Trey makes a post on the newsgroup about the dungeon holding the one and only boss in the game. The screenshots they share show a darkened, winding staircase within a stone corridor. Another user, the girl that was terminated by Foundation agents in her home, responds, saying, This is where I died. The man with the tumor in his brain also dies in Foundation care, and the autopsy shows that the brain tumor is, in fact, a developing brain. Trey posts another update, claiming to have traveled up the spiral staircase for three hours, finally spotting an irregularity on the wall. They were able to clip through the wall at this point, and shared a screenshot of their findings, which are expunged from the record. All testing is stopped at this point, as the Foundation focuses on finding this Trey individual, before they can confront the anomaly. We're informed that the chains have become too few in number to hold it. December 9th. Another D-Class, this one having no interaction with the game, begins to regurgitate shards of glass before dying of blood loss. The three-year-old boy that fell into a coma after watching his sibling play the game finally shows some activity. He cries out, hot, too hot, as his body temperature rises above 38 degrees Celsius, or 100 degrees Fahrenheit. He quickly expires. The soundbite from the game that is played during the game over screen plays over the PA systems of 70 Foundation sites, as well as countless civilian institutions, recreation centers, and shopping districts across the country. Several dozen ropes manifest over the primary testing site of the game, leading the site director, the task force commander, and a senior researcher to be hanged upon attempting escape. The remaining senior staff is similarly killed as the ropes move through the site. Clerical and custodial staff are not targeted. 
The user Trey makes his final post to the news group, stating only, I found where he died. Wow. Well, even if there was no explanation for any of this, it's still a pretty wild ride. There's obviously now a lot of connections throughout this, some more obvious than others, such as the twins singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star incorrectly, or another couple mentions of the chains. We're also now seeing more and more examples of the title phrase, This is where I died, which we know is crucial to the story, but still not sure why. The connections alone still won't give us a complete understanding of what this is all about, and what exactly the Foundation is containing here. As we click on to the next section though, we're told that this is at a critical risk of containment failure. Two candles now, and we're informed that it's imperative that we press onwards. So we shall. It's a testing log this time, with the goal of determining the presence of anomalous phenomena in a doll presumably the same doll that was found in a testing cell during the game testing. A D-class is placed in a room with the doll on a chair and told to remain still. The temperature in the room drops by 2 degrees Celsius, and the doll plays a rendition of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star with different lyrics. The lyrics read, Twin kill, twin kill, little stars, robbed of wonder, torn and scarred, Rest above the world so high, two souls flit about the night. Twin kill, twin kill, little stars, justice is not very far. As the D-Class backs away from the doll into a corner, the doll's eyes continue to track him. The D-Class suffered from heart palpitations on account of stress afterwards, and medical personnel report a mild unease from viewing him, the reason being indescribable. To determine sapience of the doll, the D-Class is put back into the chamber and told to speak to it. After greeting the doll, the doll responds, calling the D-Class by his birth name. The D-Class immediately asks to be let out, as the doll giggles until he is removed. The D-Class is found to still be in fine health, but his eyes are particularly glassy and dry, and he reports having trouble blinking. The next set is to determine the identity of the doll, and discern how long until the chains fail to hold. The D-Class is put back into the room with a questionnaire. The doll identifies itself as Cindy, but refuses to elaborate on its intent or purpose. It instead begins talking about the D-Class's crime which led to his incarceration. As the doll talks, a faint screaming sound is heard inside of the chamber from an unknown source growing in volume. The screaming suddenly stops, and the doll asks the D-Class to play with it, which the D-Class refuses. It then asks him about Jacqueline Hallcroft, and the D-Class demands to be let out. Medical personnel now report an implacable feeling of terror upon looking at the D-Class, but they find a small cyst on the subject's back. The doctor that discovered it is apprehensive about lacerating it, and is granted personal leave. The D-Class is once again sent back in to find out more about the doll, and a small table, two chairs, and a toy tea set are placed in the room. The two share imaginary cups of tea as they begin talking about the weather and their favorite teas, 
until the D-Class asks the doll how she came to be here. The doll states that she exists to fulfill a singular purpose, staring at the D-Class. She then goes into an inane tangent about the events in the exploration log that the MTF went through. The test is aborted, with the D-Class reporting trouble moving his digits. It's worth noting that the text has previously referred to the D-Class as a him, and now refers to him as it. The cyst on his back has swollen considerably, and the D-Class is becoming increasingly belligerent about failing to scratch it. Finally, the decision is made to lacerate it, causing a large volume of pus to pour out, alongside a thin-threaded filament. As the filament is being pulled out, it suddenly retracts into the D-Class's back, and he begins screaming uncontrollably for his mother. The D-Class is now referred to as an item, whereas the doll is referred to as Cindy. He is sent back in to bargain with Cindy for information, promising her Foundation support and fulfilling her mission in exchange for sharing knowledge on what the mission entails. The D-Class has now lost the use of his legs, so he is taken in and the door is sealed. The D-Class, with great trouble, reads the script provided by the Foundation, detailing their intent to aid Cindy. Cindy simply blushes, laughs, and stands, approaching the D-Class. She stares him in the eyes and says she already has everything she wants. She then asks for the door to be opened, which it is, and a doctor offers to give her a ride home, saying that her parents must be worried. Cindy is then taken home, to the Albright Manor. We're then provided a picture of what is labeled as the item recovered from within the chamber, but it kind of freaks me out, so let's move on. One candle remains. We're told that the containment breach is imminent, and we shouldn't stop reading, so we won't. This log details recovered evidence collected by the Foundation, and we're about to get a whole lot of clues. First is from January 1st, 2001, from Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park in Quarryville, Pennsylvania, which I'll note would be quite a cold camping vacation. A camper trailer furnished for four is found at a campsite with no accompanying vehicle, with a malnourished border collie laying next to it. The dog became violent upon being collected. A stick was found with two marshmallows skewered on one side, and the other side smoldering in the fire pit. A rosary is found belonging to Agent Grace, the possessed MTF agent. A single chain, rusted and near useless. Three bloodied fingernails next to a small stone in the ground. Claw marks are found in the dirt for half a meter from the direction of the camper. Several charred pieces of paper in the fire pit. Burnt clothing belonging to an adult male is found hidden beneath the camper. And tire treads belonging to a pickup truck or SUV lead away from the area. Next is at the Abdi residence in Calvert, Texas on December 14, 1988, same year as the video game debacle. A woman's tattered nightgown is found caught in the bushes beneath a second-story bathroom window. Bare footprints showing a slow and steady walk lead through the mud towards the street. Parallel pairs of slashes, rips, and tears are found in several pieces of furniture in the living room, which is in a state of disarray. A pair of marks are scratched in the wall leading from the bottom to the top of the staircase. 
A flashlight in the on position with dead batteries and a cracked lens is found. Three sleeping bags, the first soiled with urine, the second torn apart with no remaining biological evidence aside from a single strand of hair. The third zipped closed around a mound believed originally to be one of the missing persons. Five pounds of soil taken from the town the MTF explored. A tire iron located at the bottom of the stairs in a pool of bile. The door to the master bedroom had been torn off the hinges. The door to the master bathroom is locked from the inside with a single slip of paper inserted beneath the door. Text tells us that it was meant to be read, but we're not told what was on the paper. Also, a single child's toothbrush with a bloodied handle. Blood, viscera, and eye fluid is found in the sink across from the open window. Next, November 11th, 2019, at the cabin of a horror writer in the Netherlands. A single pair of boot prints is discovered in the snow leading from the cabin into the wilderness. The trail ends at a nearby country road. The L key is missing from the writer's typewriter. A manuscript, several hundred pages long, is found atop the workstation, and it's burned by investigators. A loaded handgun is laying on the floor next to the chair, a single round discharged. Other things discovered are apparently the final chapter and spirals. Minute traces of blood, bone fragments, and cerebral matter in the vicinity of the workstation as well as a bundle of towels soaked in blood and containing more bone fragments are found beneath the bathroom sink. The victim's trademark hat was found to have been stolen as well. October 31st, 2018, at the home of a host of a horror podcast titled Witching Hour in Manchester, England. Spotches of a warm, viscous fluid are found around a shattered basement window. A cloud of smoke the lingering scent of burning hair and scorched flesh, a cell phone belonging to a guest vlogger that contained a trigger, although a trigger for what is unsaid. Several ounces of ash, concentrated within countless handprints across the basement floor, coming from a single point of origin. A newspaper article regarding the disappearance of twins, Sindel and Mandy, the girls that sang Twinkle Twinkle. A digital camera is found containing footage recorded immediately after the live stream of the podcast was corrupted. The footage was viewed on mute by a single individual, who has since been euthanized. A wired lapel mic is found with its entire length covered in saliva, along with a desiccated husk of inverted human skin, the oral cavity grossly expanded. Next, the Judith Montague Memorial Library in Wales, although the date is redacted to only show the ones. Shattered glass is scattered about the south-facing window, most of it stained with blood. Something small and defenseless is found originating from Jacqueline Hallcroft. Eleven dead birds of various species, killed by internal bleeding and bruising of the brain from a collision with the structure. The building is heavily infested with houseflies, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Library cards belonging to six victims, each members of the book club. Five books are found throughout the reading area, rotten beyond identification, each containing genetic material from their respective readers. A low droning noise can be heard throughout the area, a hymn in an unknown language. A trail of words in cursive 
written in human blood, begins at the shattered window and leads across the street towards the book depository. One operative is apparently lost while investigating. August 11th, 1914, in the Allied trenches in France. Not minding how these things were discovered, a collapsible spade is found at the bottom of an 11-meter shaft next to the soldiers. Three dog tags, two of which are warped with identifying information scratched out. A single human eye found in the possession of a rat. A severely damaged copy of Prodigy, Priest, King, quite anachronistically. Spent munitions and empty rifles are also found, which wouldn't be uncommon, but investigation reveals that most rounds were fired into friendly territory. An unopened envelope containing an illegible letter is located beneath the duckboards. We're told they will not be missed. One meter of barbed wire caked in viscera, with the uniform of a missing soldier tangled within it. Eleven teeth belonging to the only identified soldier are found at the bottom of the pit, coated in soil. A tunnel, large enough for a grown man, extends from the bottom of the pit for several hundred meters, reaching a trench in enemy territory. Several more teeth are found within the tunnel. Finally, December 31st, 2011, at the Taichi Kazuo residence. Black clouded water is found in all basins, samples revealing the water to contain powdered bone mineral. Extensive water damage in the rooms beneath and next to the bathroom. Copious amounts of one meter long black human hair is found. The sound when they burn each witness in the crematorium is also discovered. Eleven mirrors throughout the home, ten of them shattered, and the last, a small pocket mirror, is untouched. All clothing and personal effects belonging to six of the seven missing participants are found neatly folded and arranged. One hundred extinguished candles gathered in the center of the living quarters. This sentence is repeated a number of times in different formats, repeatedly informing us that one hundred extinguished candles are gathered in the center of the living quarters, but living is crossed out. The log ends with the words, Candles, Extinguished, Gathered, Living. The warning at the bottom is now written in slightly garbled text, telling us to please disregard all previous warnings, and we may proceed within. Moving on, we see a black image with the text, Containment compromised. Turn off your device. Do not proceed. A few seconds later, the screen changes showing a video, which I will now play for you. And that's it. That's the end of SCP-5999. At this point, you're likely of one of two different mindsets. One group is likely satisfied enough with the mystery up to this point, and are happy to leave it as it is in their minds. After all, like I said, regardless of an explanation, it's been a wild ride of various horror stories. The other group, though, will want an explanation for all of this, a single unifying thread that connects all of the chapters together into one coherent whole. 
This group might end up being disappointed by the explanation though. So feel free to end the video now if you want to ponder it on your own. Let's look at the overarching imagery of the entire piece, the candles. From seven to zero they counted down, but the only mention of candles in the text came at the very end, from the recovered items in the Kazuo residence. In there the Foundation found 100 extinguished candles in the living quarters and a small undamaged pocket mirror. This is actually an old game from hundreds of years ago in Japan. I won't risk the Japanese title, but the literal translation is A Gathering of 100 Supernatural Tales. Players of this game would gather 100 paper lamps or candles in a room of their house. They would also place a mirror on a small table in the same room. The participants would then go two rooms over and begin sharing scary stories with one another. Whenever a person finished telling a story, they would walk across the rooms and extinguish a light before looking into the mirror and walking back. As the night progressed, the light in the third room would grow darker and darker, typically causing players to grow more and more fearful as they told tales of ghosts and ghouls. The idea was that when the last light was extinguished, the third room would become a beacon for all of the invoked spirits to enter the home. For this reason, most players would be too scared to go all the way to 100, and would stop at 99. For us though, we continued on, ticking down the candles one by one until none were left, and we were greeted by, well, a monster. The other reoccurring trend throughout the whole piece is the odd text in various places that seems like it doesn't fit with the rest of the stories. Most of this text discusses the chains faltering and breaking, but there are other examples. The thing about this text that I didn't convey to you earlier is that it is actually in a unique typeface, making it stand out. Let's go back and look at the various examples, starting at the very beginning where the item number is listed as null and the object class is listed as contained. The word witness is also altered in relation to the mysterious procedure sevenfold at Albright Manor, and the text about the chains remaining taut. In the next section, the words visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations are altered, but olfactory hallucinations is not. I'll note that this altered text could constitute a visual hallucination on our part, and throughout the piece we do hear odd audio in the background occasionally, but we don't smell anything strange, or at least I hope not. The text of The Chains Are Weakening is also altered. In the next section, The Chains in the Road Break Easily Beneath is altered, and the only other example is at the end, the words false beast. In the exorcism section, the text telling us that the accident was due to a failure of the chains to hold what lies beneath is altered, and in the video game timeline section, only the text about the twins, Sindel and Mandy Shields, being found dead with broken chain links around them is altered. In the testing log with Cindy the doll, the text, how long until the chains fail to hold, is different. And I'll note that Cindy seems to be a combination of the twins, Sindel and Mandy. 
In the recovered items section, we have the text, A single chain, rusted and near useless. The word, spirals. The text, it was meant to be read. And finally, the word, living. What does all this alternate text tell us, then? Obviously, there are chains holding something back, and the chains quickly fail as we continue through the document, apparently releasing the monster at the very end when all of the candles are extinguished. Presumably, then, SCP-5000 is that monster, and we released it by reading this document, right? But think about that idea more carefully. Why would the Foundation have this file on their servers that could release a dangerous monster just by reading it? with only some half-hearted warnings to stop people. This file does serve a purpose, but it isn't to contain a monster. It's actually used to kill something. Credit where credit is due, as the user Captain Kirby on the SCP Wiki managed to solve all of this very handily. You might be surprised to learn that all of this build-up All of these stories and mysteries and connections actually are effectively meaningless. There are plenty of different references and connections here, and some of the fun is just trying to tie as many of them together as you can, but the whole point of the article is to keep you guessing and keep you interested. Look at it this way. Whenever an SCP article or page features a dire warning about requiring level 5 access or to stop reading, you promptly ignore it and keep going. In fact, the warnings only really serve to spur you on, suggesting that there's something really dark and impressive concealed behind them. The altered text, it was meant to be read, refers to this document entirely, as we were meant to read through it. The question is, why? As we continued reading, we broke chain after chain that was keeping something restrained until it was released at the very end in the form of a monster. The document was containing the monster, but its release was not an accident. We were meant to release it by reading, but as I implied earlier, the monster is not SCP-5000, as the altered text refers at one point to a false beast. The monster is the false beast, and the actual beast is us. In other words, us, as readers, were meant to read through this document and were meant to release this false beast at the end, upon which the document finishes. The reason for all of this is hinted at in two places, one in the altered word, spirals, and the other a little sneakier, in the revision history of the article itself, where the author mentions a protocol that is tentatively initiated. On the page showcasing the various SCP-001 proposals, there is a memetic kill agent designed to kill those without proper authority. The memetic kill agent is an image consisting of various spirals. So we know there is a memetic kill agent involved here, and it's connected to a 001 proposal. The procedure mentioned in the comment is blacked out, but the boxes correlate to a procedure mentioned in S. Andrew Swan's proposal, The Database. I mentioned this one in my 001 video long ago, but as a refresher, it details a discovery by the Foundation that their reality is in constant flux due to a bunch of horror writers. 
In other words, they discovered that their reality is underneath ours and subject to our whims. They developed a protocol to put a stop to this, however, in which the Foundation would fight back at us with memetic agents across the database designed to either calm us, make us unconscious, or kill us. It's been a while in the making, but we finally stumbled upon one of these kill agents. Now, of course, speaking for myself at least, it didn't really work, but this was their attempt. Rather than just plastering some kill agent on the front of the site, they apparently realized they needed something more unique and stronger. This kill agent is ultimately the monster at the end of the document, the false beast. They kept it chained up, metaphysically speaking, and designed the document so that we, as readers, would slowly release it so that it could kill us, unwittingly. The document, therefore, consists of a great number of tropes, cliches, and random horror concepts, both throughout the SCP wiki as well as other sources, designed to keep us guessing, and thus keep us reading, until the very end, hoping for an answer. The only answer we get, though, is our death, or lack thereof. This idea is corroborated throughout the document at the ends of each section, telling us which Foundation personnel provided each section, since the Foundation itself made all of this up. So that's it. That's the explanation. As I said, this may either disappoint you or delight you, depending on how you feel about meta-narratives. All in all, though, it was a great read regardless, with plenty of great imagery and writing. Maybe the Foundation's great, killer, creepypasta didn't work out so well for them this time, but if they keep working at it, 